you're listening to Science at the Local. I'm Hamish Clark. And my own name is Kevin Joseph. And this week I had an interesting chat with Professor Paul Young, who's a virologist, someone who studies viruses, at the University of Queensland. That's a perfect place to study viruses, if you ask for. <laughs> I feel like that was maybe a dig. I can't quite tell, but I'll just, I'll just go along with it. Um, so Paul had a lot of interesting stories to tell. Um, one of the things I like is that um, kind of moves a little bit away from viruses as being this kind of evil thing and says, well, hang on, there's actually a lot more to viruses than just those nasty ones that make us sick. Um, and so it kind of it shows the, the kind of softer, gentler side of viruses. Chronically misunderstood. Perhaps, yeah, that might be it. I was kind of suggesting because there's been a lot of interest in the gut microbiome and, and bacteria and there's this idea of good bacteria and I was wondering whether we might reach that point with viruses where people can kind of comfortably talk about good viruses too. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. but Maybe a bridge too far? Maybe, yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's another interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Probably the most important question, what's your coffee supply situation there? Do you have a, a machine for your institute? Do you go to a cafe? Uh, a bit of both. So uh, whenever there's a meeting on, it's got to be coffee at Nano's. Uh, otherwise, I, uh, I self-administer. Uh, uh, self yeah, it seems to be one of those important things, the kind of glue that holds the academic community and good centres together. All the best collaborative projects come out of a coffee meeting. So um, maybe you can, can give me a very quick uh, blurb on kind of where you are and what you do, and we can take it from there. Okay, yeah, um, I'm currently head of the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences, uh, a virologist by training. I did actually do my degree, uh, my basic degree here at uh, the University of Queensland, uh, but uh, did my PhD in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, I've been interested for a long time in uh, human viral pathogens uh, and started off working on uh, relatives of Lassa fever. That was what my, uh, my uh, PhD was on. Lassa fever, what's that? So Lassa fever is one of those exotic African pathogens. Uh, it used to be talked about uh, um, more often than Ebola until Ebola happened last year. So it's, it's it, Lassa, um, unlike Ebola, was, has always been uh, spreading around in, in local village environments, particularly in West Africa. Uh, also has a similar high fatality uh, outcome. Uh, it's one of the, it's the classic scenario of a virus that hasn't really adapted to humans as its host. Most of most of the dramatic viruses we hear about <clears throat> are just viruses that have spilt out of their normal uh, virus-host relationship, <clears throat> where they've co-evolved um, to uh, to then cause damage in in uh, in a um, <coughs> sorry. <clears throat> I need my. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so is that a fairly well um, accepted? Um, uh, view amongst virologists that there's a kind of a normal virus-host relationship and then when they spill out of it, as you say, that's where problems emerge? Yeah, and they're referred to as zoonotic infections where, when it's spilt over from another uh, animal um, 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 life cycle. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you might think that uh, a virus gaining higher pathogenicity is actually one of, the, one of its evolutionary drivers, but in fact that's not the evolutionary driver, the driver is transmission so that it actually maintains itself in a population. And if you're going to kill your, your host in, in a very rapid fashion, you don't manage to survive uh, yourself. So coevolution of viruses with uh, the host has usually meant a loss of virulency. And so 
In fact, we carry a lot of human viruses, very human-specific viruses, that very rarely cause us major problems. The, the real issue is these sideline ones. So, of course, yeah. Well, I, I, that reminds me a, a bit of um, bacteria where there's a few of them who give the whole... Um, well, they're not a species. What do you call the whole group? They give the whole group a bad name, if you like. Yeah, yeah. But they get the attention. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> so, so um, yeah, that, that, that was my first port of call. I also worked on hepatitis B. but uh, So I was in London for 11 years. And, wow. So uh, you enjoyed it there? Oh, very much. Um, you know, we had a family over there, and um, it was the thought of bringing up our young, two young girls in in, in drizzly London, that um, or, or even in the outreaches, I was contemplating uh, 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 moving out to either Cambridge or Bristol, where I'd had some offers, and uh, and I just happened to be at a meeting in Canada, as it happened, and uh, someone from Australia offered me a job on the spot. Uh, wow. I went home, and I, we had a discussion about it, and thought of the wonderful uh, uh, life as a child uh, we had in Brisbane, and uh, so uh, we came back. Haven't recredited it one day since. Although um, my eldest daughter is now living back in London, uh, she said, "Why did you ever leave?" Because <laughs> that's her favourite uh, favourite place now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a bigger city and more international, but you're also missing out on some of those things that you're enjoying there in Brisbane. Well, I was a keen bushwalker as a university student, so I, I very much enjoy the the local environment. Well, maybe she'll come back uh, when she wants to settle down. She has no intentions of coming coming. <laughs> She's in the theatre industry, uh, a theatre producer, and uh, yeah, London's clearly clearly a, 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 a more optimal place than uh, than Brisbane for that. But uh, while I was there, I after finishing my PhD, my, the, the last project was uh, an interest of my supervisor, obviously, and uh, so I picked up something different, which was dengue. And uh, so I've picked up in an in an academic sense. In an academic sense, yes, that's true. Uh, picked up an interest in. Uh, in uh, dengue research, got funded by WHO, and I've, I've been working on that ever since. Um, came back into to Australia in '89, and um, uh, began a, began work on on a pro dengue project here. Uh, built my lab and um, um, acquired some other interests along the way. As you do, and one of those was this koala retrovirus, which was mm. well, so you're spending a bit of time on that at the moment. A little bit. It's one of those, I think it's going to always remain a, 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 an interesting sideline project, but it did lead to my only nature paper, so, ah, uh, well, so it's a good a place in your heart then. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the WHO. Did you say that's a, a relationship that you still have kept up over the years? Um, yeah, various forms. I've been on various WHO committees as a result of the work we did on dengue. Um, we've, we've had, uh, I mean... WHO is not a major funding organisation, but it, clearly they have um, a policy clout, and it's really important to embrace uh, uh, WHO and the decisions they make on a global level, particularly for someone like me who works in developing world diseases or tropical diseases. What used to be called neglected diseases, they still are. Dengue's probably can't be quite referred to as neglected anymore. Well, that's but, good. Uh, you're, uh, you're achieving your goals then. That's exactly. one of the aims. When I started uh, dengue research, uh, most of the researchers in the world could fit into one, you know, relatively medium-sized room. But uh, that's certainly not the case now. And, and of course, it's brought a whole new batch of um, researchers have come into the to the slightly broader field of uh, flaviviruses, which uh, dengue belongs to, because of Zika, um, mm. which is in the same group. Mm. In fact, Zika is probably the most closely related flavivirus to um, to dengue. 
So, so yeah, short answer to your question. Yes, we're now still we're still back in uh, relationships with WHO, but this time uh, from a vaccine perspective. Ah, okay. Um, I'm interested also just, I mean, you mentioned they're not a major funding source, but um, academics these days need to be very mindful of, you know, getting grants, but also of the impact that they're having in some uh, a more or less kind of desiring of having those interactions with end users or, you know, groups in society. So that's been important for you? Oh, it's always been important for me, but, you know, just, that's become a real tightrope at the moment um, for, for researchers. Uh, funding uh, bodies, I mean, industry has always had that as an output, translational outcomes and uh, are, are the focus of their efforts and that's obvious uh, and needs to be. Um, federal government, I, I believe, is, or, or government agencies in general, are also pushing that particular angle, possibly to the expense, uh, to some degree, of the, ba of the basic sciences. I mean, the reality is if you look at any major breakthroughs, in fact not even just the breakthroughs, a lot of development, they have come from basic research, it's come out of left field when people weren't expecting them and they and, and researchers themselves have seen the application and then moved it forward. Uh, to drive an, a, a complete research and development effort that's based on translating existing um, um, knowledge is, is going to come a cropper somewhere down the line. So, uh, so we're always having to you know, we're innately interested, most scientists are innately interested in, 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 in processes. Mm. Uh, we also have a passion about make a, making a difference and, and that means translation. Um, my group uh, developed a diagnostic assay for dengue which is now used globally. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Uh, it, but it was a minor part of our, our, our work to some degree where the majority is um, uh, majority of our work is understanding the disease process itself, but out of that understanding comes comes application. I'll give you an example. Um, we've been studying a protein called NS1 um, since 1986. My group, <laughs> so this one protein, we it's, it's an extraordinary protein. It's got multiple functions in the virus, and I've just found it innately interesting over the years. Um, and and you know we've got structural information on it. We've got um, information on how it, engage, uh, how, it, how it helps the virus replicate and so on. Um, last year we published a paper in Science Translational Medicine uh, reporting work that is a combination of quite a few years of work um, showing that this protein triggers uh, what's called a TLR4 receptor, toll-like receptor 4. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the receptors our cells, immune cells, use to detect pathogen presence. Uh, and it's the same, it's the same um, receptor that's used by uh, bacterial products, uh, in particular LPS or lipopolysaccharide, mm -hmm. uh, that actually causes septic shock. So it's, it's produced in massive quantities in bacter bacteremia infections and uh, is a major um, um, potential fatal, uh, fatal um, outcome for, for patients who, who have these uncontrolled uh, bacterial growths. So having identified that there's a viral protein which is found circulating in patient blood that triggers this same receptor has immediately meant that we can tap into the 20 or 30 years of research that the bacteriologists have, have had and the mm -hmm. pharmaceutical industry have had developing drugs that bind to that receptor to block um, LPS activity. We've now shown that um, uh, drugs that have, were developed for that purpose also work against dengue. Right? So it's, and and we're now, we're now in, uh, in collaboration with a company and we're going into human cl clinical trials next year to test its efficacy in dengue patients. Wow, so you're really straddling that basic and applied 
it's a perfect example, isn't it? I mean, I, that wasn't my intent with the research, but out, out of the out of the observations of just what this protein does came a very direct application and, and will cut years off the drug development pipeline because, of course, this is a, uh, the sepsis drugs have already gone through clinical trials. Mm. So we can, it, it's a process called repurposing. So you can take, take a drug for another uh, purpose and repurpose it for yours and it can just jump a number of the hurdles. So, yeah, so it, basic research is important to fund and um, yeah. I mean, not all of it's going to, going to lead to, um, to translational outcome. But without that basic research, you're going to limit your capacity to do that. So um, how did you get interested in, uh, in the field of virology in the first place? <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing how, how one's life defines paths for somewhat trivial reasons sometimes. Um, I did my uh, degree in the early 70s and uh, was entering into research in 1975. Uh, and at that time, genetic engineering was was absolutely exploding. It was it was at right at the start, and the idea of being able to um, to understand the genetic code and to manipulate it in terms of expressing proteins and all that sort of thing was an extremely exciting time. So that's where I wanted to go. Um, it happened that the lab that was the only lab in, in the University of Queensland that was doing that was full. Uh, there are a couple of honor students who decided to do PhDs, so that meant there was no extra room. So I looked around for the next best thing and uh, the virus lab was it. And I thought, well, I'll do, do a bit of that uh, in the meantime. Fell in, love with, fell in love with it, but of course, we use molecular biology techniques in virology. Yes, yeah, they go hand in hand. Yeah. I, had a, I had a great, I mean, one of the things that also defines a career often is your mentors. And my honours mentor was, was just an extraordinary man. Um, he worked at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, which is where I did my honours project. And his mm -hmm. fundamental interest was evolution. And mm -hmm. uh, viruses are a great tool to study evolution because they evolve so rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. I remember someone telling me that they thought that um, you could re reconstitute essentially the entire um, genome of, of most species just by looking at viruses. If you could somehow pull the viruses from the, the whole biosphere, um, you could find out about pretty much every other species that's lived. Absolutely, because uh, I mean, the reason they would have said that is um, viruses can only exist by infecting and living in other tissues. And by doing that, they often pick up the genet genetic information from those uh, hosts. So, um, so they're carrying that uh, with them. But as maybe we'll get to talk about in the context of the, the koala retrovirus, um, it, is, um, it is a virus that uh, um, like a lot of other retroviruses, has this rather unusual lifestyle where it reverse engineers its RNA genome into a DNA and then inserts it into the host's uh, own chromosome. And it just sits there for a while and, and may or may not get back translated and, and an infection might break out, is that right? Is that, that's right. I mean, the normal life cycle is that you know it's sitting in there, it controls some of the cellular processes so that it makes a better replicative environment for the virus itself. Uh, the virus will be transcribed, viral genome will be transcribed and packaged and, and out it will come. And in many of these retrovirus cases, like HIV is a classic example, uh, they only infect somatic cells. So um, it's, it's an infection of that particular individual. But the, the virus is there for, for the life of that individual, and at least the life of that uh, cell and its, and its lineage. And that's one of the problems with HIV. You know, once you catch HIV, it's very hard to cure because you can't go in and slice out 
if it's DNA. But there are some retroviruses that have the capacity to infect germline cells. Now that's different. If you, if a retrovirus infects a germline cell and inserts its DNA, that's forever, and that gets incorporated into the offspring. It then becomes uh, part of their uh, part of their DNA, and uh, as a consequence, uh, the human genome comprises about eight eight to ten percent of, uh, of retroviruses that have invaded us over the mi millions of years we've been evolving, and uh, we as a population are still carrying them. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, do you think that the the popular understanding or or impression of viruses is changing somewhat and I'm going to ask you partly because I think there's been a huge increase in interest in bacteria especially things like gut bacteria um, and I'm not saying everyone understands bacteria very well or the role that they play but it does seem to have captured the popular imagination to some extent um, have you seen the impression of viruses shift or do you see a similar kind of thing happening down the track um, I guess the my, my impression of the popular opinion of viruses is that they only cause disease. Uh, whereas I think it's becoming uh, fairly uh, commonly accepted that our gut microbiome, for example, influences um, a whole range of physiological parameters. Yes, it can cause disease, but, but it has beneficial effects. And I think that's generally understood. I don't think it's generally understood that viruses have beneficial effects. Uh, and they do. You know, I mean, we're placental mammals because of a virus. That's a nice story. Would you care to elaborate on that? Sure. So you remember I said that eight to ten percent of our genome is um, is uh, retroviral. Well, one of the one of the genes that was discovered uh, in the Human Genome Sequencing Project was a gene called Syncytin, and uh, there are two versions of it: Syncytin one and Syncytin two. Uh, in various mammal species, you can find different versions of them: Syncytin A and B in mice, etc., etc. Uh, but all, all mammals have, uh, have these viruses. What, uh, no one knew what it did when it was identified. It was just a, uh, a um, gene-gathering exercise, the Human Genome Sequencing Project, and subsequently everyone's been working, beavering away, working out what every, everything does. Uh, one thing they did notice about this gene is that it's expressed at high levels in, uh, in uterine tissue. What it turns out to be, when, when, it, when it's sequenced, it, it has a remarkable similarity to the envelope coat protein of retroviruses. Okay, so these are the proteins that are on the surface of uh, viruses. Viruses are made up of a coat, which is made up of a membrane, and inside of that is their genome. I'll have to post uh, some pictures of them on our, on our website because they look absolutely incredible. They are. They are, in, they are beautiful. Uh, but the, the proteins that are on the surface of the viruses are little machines. Uh, they're called fusion machines, and the the only way a virus that's wrapped up in an envelope can get into a host cell which is wrapped up in an envelope uh, mm. for the two lipid envelopes to fuse. Mm. So what that protein does is actually bind to the surface of a cell, and when it's bound, it's triggered to go through a conformational change mm. that drives the fusion of the two membranes. And when the two membranes are fused, the nucleic acid can get into the cell. So it's a very efficient process for infection, right? So um, if you actually look at this, this gene in the, um, in the human genome, you can see that there, there is a full open reading frame with a start and a stop codon, and it's exactly like the envelope gene of a retrovirus. Around it are the remnants, you know, through millions of years. We think it's about 60, uh, maybe 100, sorry, what is it? 120, 130 million years old, this gene. And it's been with us for that long. 
Around that are the remnants of the rest of the genome of the virus, but none of it's functional. But this mm. one gene has been kept. Mm. What happens when uh, an embryo implants into the placental wall? It fuses. So the first step in, in embryo implantation is a fusion uh, with the placental uh, wall and the generation of a, of a layer that's called a syncytiotrophoblast. And that mm. syncytiotrophoblast is a, uh, a collection of all the fused cells locally where the embryo has implanted that uh, the mother's cells form. So it's multinucleated fused cell that allows the transfer of, um, of uh, nutrients. All the important from, stuff. From the mother, mother to the baby. That's and incredible. it's all driven by this viral protein. So we would not uh, be placental mammals without uh, having uh, had that virus invade us 120, 30 million years ago. That's a great That's story. story. And, you know, so, so there's a, you know, not only are they beneficial, they've actually driven our evolution. They're intimate players and components. So say if you actually think of a virus and, and what its objectives are, if you, if you break it down to its, its minimal component from an evolutionary point of view, what are the selective advantages for the survival of a, of a virus? It's, it's the survival of its genetic message. Now, it normally does that by infecting cells and transmitting to another host and replicating and so on. If it can embed itself uh, into a host chromosome, uh, it's essentially rich nirvana. It's uh, it's uh, it's got permanent permanent survival in that in that host species. Evolutionary nirvana. That can be exactly. the name of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was just going to say, and that that sort of leads into the story with the koala retroviruses, and that's how it got into nature because uh, what we found was that uh, the koala population as a whole are experiencing the invasion of of the retrovirus as we speak. Right. Um, you can so watch that in real time. And it's the first time we've ever been able to watch this in real time in a natural population. And uh, what we discovered was that um, koalas up in Queensland are pretty much 100% uh, already invaded. Uh, we've shown it in testes, in sperm cells. So we've shown that it's entered the germline and it's passed on to offspring. But as you go down to, uh, particularly down to uh, Victoria and South Australia, the populations are somewhat mixed. Uh, in the early days, we actually found a population on Kangaroo Island of koalas that were completely free of uh, the virus. But literally, in the, uh, within the last 10 years, uh, the virus has, has made an incursion onto the island, so the numbers are actually increasing now. Wow. So what's, so, the, um, what's the pathway for that? We don't know. It's a good question. We don't know how it's being transmitted. Uh, we've detected uh, the virus in, the, uh, in, in uh, ticks, um, but... You know, not surprisingly, the virus circulates in the blood of uh, koalas and tick that feeds on it and, and has a blood meal will obviously have the virus. So it's possible that tick transmission might be occurring. We're, we're still trying to work out direct um, um, koala to koala interactions is a possibility. Uh, but yeah, we, we don't know exactly the story. But the, the reality of, of retroviruses is that this one is still engaging with its host for the first time, as it were. And so it's not, it's not a passive scenario. Uh, it is causing disease. And the koala populations, particularly in Queensland, have been crashing in certain areas. You know, that's, that's, that's a consequence of um, a whole range of things, like habitat destruction is a big one. Um, we think we're looking at the local extinction of koalas in southeast Queensland, unfortunately, because of habitat um, uh, destruction, urbanisation, uh, effects of you know, dogs and, and, and cars and so on. But uh, there, there is this underlying disease scenario. So there's a ridiculously high level 
unusual for any particular species of uh, things like chlamydia, which is a classic opportunistic infection of, uh, of immunosuppressed individuals, which these retroviruses can do. And mm -hmm. there's also a very high cancer rate, uh, particularly lymphomas and leukemias. So mm -hmm. when you look at the population, you can see they're under stress. And, uh, and that, this is probably the normal interaction between you know, a retrovirus and a host that it's encountering. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that, that gene I described, the syncytin gene of, of, a, of a virus that, that invaded us 120, 30 million years ago, probably did have similar deleterious consequences to our ancestors and we're the survivors. So uh, it's, a, it's a process of evolutionary adaptation or die, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, uh, I probably should wrap it up, but uh, maybe I can um, end uh, by asking you to um, whip out your crystal ball and uh, where do you see the field heading down the track? What do you think are the biggest open questions? Um, the biggest open questions are the, are the relationships between viruses and hosts. And I, I think you asked me the question before about, you know, where, where does the public see uh, viruses versus uh, where they see bacteria. I think that's where we're moving with the virus um, story. I think, uh, you know, getting the story out that there are good viruses and there are bad viruses. Um, and uh, getting that story out about our intimate relationship with viruses and how they have co-evolved with us and have in part driven our own evolution is a story that's coming out. Um, our greater understanding of that interaction will allow us to combat, I think, uh, the ones more effectively, the ones that um, cause us disease. I, I think, you know, the example I, I, I gave of, um, of the dengue story where we discovered yes. this protein that triggers um, uh, a TLR4 receptor, that's a natural defense mechanism of hosts and if you actually look at a lot of disease scenarios between the viruses cause in humans, uh, it's not always about virus destruction of cells, of, of the host tissue itself. It's mm -hmm. about our over-robust immune response. So you can actually get disease from us being too, too uh, pas uh, passionate about... Uh, about that reminds me of allergies and, and things like it, that. It's exactly what that is. But viruses um, tickle that particular part of the immune system so you get that allergic type response. Um, influenza, for example, the most severe forms of influenza is because, not necessarily because of the virus, um, primarily the virus infection, but because it um, induces a what is called a pro-inflammatory infiltrate into the lung tissues, which causes us difficulty in breathing. It's, it's, uh, it's that over-robust immune response. My, my feeling in the future is that we're going to be able to start manipulating that, that immune response. If we can just turn the volume down a little, mm -hmm. at the right stage in, a, in an infection, we'll be able to dramatically affect the uh, outcome of viral infections. And I think mm -hmm. that, that goes right across the board. Great. Well, look, uh, thanks so much for your time, Paul. It's been great talking to you. No problem. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, brought to you by Hamish Clark and Kevin Joseph. If you like what you've heard, look us up on iTunes or subscribe at soundcloud.com slash science at the local, where you can also find show notes with links to content from the episode. Thanks to our partners, Winmalee and Springwood Neighbourhood Centres and Inspiring Australia.